Welcome into the very first edition of the Hops and Spirits Under the Influence Roundtable Series. This is our uh, beer uh, influence one. We're under the influence of beer tonight, and we have a great panel joining us. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and we have, depending on how it looks on your screen, we have Kenzie Bernhard, who's host of Boys Are From Marzen podcast. She also writes for PorchDrinking.com, and she's a bartender at Gallant Fox in Louisville. We also have Brian Roth who's the editor and writer at Good Beer Hunting and director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers. And last but not least, Neil Witte, Master Cicerone and owner founder of Tapstar and Craft Quality Solutions out in Kansas City. Thanks guys for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, I always like to start off with one very, very tough question. I almost thought about what what everyone's drinking, but we kind of did that before, before the show. So here's your one tough question. What is your guilty pleasure reality TV show? See, it is actually sometimes a tough question. So I'm I'm like that guy in Brooklyn who likes to tell everybody that he doesn't own a TV. Uh, I don't watch reality TV. I've watched one season of The Bachelor ever, and that's about it. I've never watched The Bachelor and I'm a female and I think that's a sin, but <laughs> I saw these tweets tonight about Bachelor and I was, or Bachelorette or whatever, whatever one they're on right now. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. So I, I'm trying to think of a reality program that I've seen in the past seven or eight years. I watch a lot of the kind of, you know, the streaming shows, like, you know, all the ones that everybody kind of talks about, but uh, reality programming is just something that I am not plugged into. And I see the, I see the tweets about like the bachelor and bachelorette and I've seen it before and it's been many years, but there's a reason why it's been many years. (laughs) I wish I had a better, like juicier answer for you. My Uh, one guilty pleasure TV show that I think is kind of embarrassing is I watch NCIS still on CBS. Nobody, I don't think anyone still watches it. Maybe. Is, is that all 12 of them? All 12 cities of NCI? <laughs> well, I do watch the Los Angeles one too. The New Orleans one was a little too cheesy and bad acting for me. But yes, I watch every new episode of NCIS and NCIS Los Angeles. I've seen every episode of every season. I know that's not reality TV, but it's kind of embarrassing because when I tell people that, they give me a lot of well, crap you're, for it. You're not exactly in the demographic that watches that show. I'm going, oh, I, yes. I love it. Yes. It's probably very older, but the demographic. Are there a lot of pharmaceutical commercials during that show? <laughs> yeah. The commercials are definitely not tailored towards me. Yeah. For, for me, surprisingly, I do watch The Bachelor and Bachelorette. My wife watches it a lot. She's watching it right now as we're recording this. I actually had to kick her out from downstairs so I could record record the podcast. Uh, I also enjoy uh, Diners, Drives, and Dives. And sometimes I was watching that on the weekend and I was like, oh man, I am not the target demographic. Because like you said, Neil, it's a lot of commercials that don't really gear toward the younger crowd. Now, that is something that if I'm flipping around, which doesn't really ever happen, I, w- I will stop on that. I'm, I'm not a Guy Fieri hater, uh, <laughs> especially seeing as, as seeing the stuff that he's done to help out service industry workers since the pandemic began. I, I have a newfound respect for him. I actually have a, uh, had a, a, a quick like one line cameo on, on his show one time. He was filming at a friend of mine's restaurant like six or seven years ago and I was I was one of the people like eating in the in the background <laughs> he came and sat at our table and I, I think I mentioned something about how I liked the chili because it had beer in it so. nice <laughs> I'll have to watch out for that episode then well let's uh get into the questions and as we were talking earlier about what we're drinking I am drinking one of our first topics it's uh the kind of I don't want to call it a new craze because it's not exactly new uh, but the athletic beer is kind of making a thing, non-alcoholic beer, but also the low-cowl IPA, kind of the athletic version of that. What is something that you guys have seen in that? Do you guys see these things as continuing on? Or, or, or what's your guys' thoughts on, on this? If, and have you even tried any of them? Yeah, um, 
I think the, you know, the, the low Cal IPA uh, in a case of something like, you know, Harpoon with their rec league, where they take it to exactly to the athletic space that you're talking mm-hmm. about, Jonathan, um, you know, this is just the even more new contemporary version of the session IPA mm-hmm. from a few years ago. Uh, and it, even if you look at the way that portfolios have been turning over the last five or six years, you find what is effectively a similar pattern with a lot of the larger breweries that are entering the space where the launch a brand, it basically has two or three years in package where if it's not showing any amount of success, um, that turns over. So for example, Firestone Walker with their Flyjack, which is their locale IPA, took the place of Easy Jack, which started out as a session IPA. Then they rebranded it for the amount of calories, the locale IPA. Then they've now turned that over completely with something with Flyjack IPA. And so I think you find uh, this kind of thing happening pretty consistently. And it makes me wonder, you know, will it last as a long-term thing? Probably not. Um, but does it have legs for another year or two? I don't see why not. I think the whole the whole topic is is interesting to me when you look at at uh, at that in like a bigger picture because I kind of see I see this this kind of athletic kind of uh, low calorie beer thing as as kind of like this midpoint between beer and seltzer. And we almost have this kind of continuum of malt beverage or malt-based alcoholic beverage, obviously excluding the NA stuff, uh, that is just this continuum of how much beer flavor and how many calories do you want in there. And at the one extreme, you've got uh, seltzer, which is largely devoid of any type of beer flavor at all. Uh, It's just kind of some light fruit flavoring mainly. And then, you know, at the other end, you've got actual beer. And then in between, you've got this kind of, you know, low calorie athletic beer. And so when you, you know, a lot of them, you know, like, and, and I don't drink a ton of these, but, you know, a lot of them are really kind of flavorless and some of them have a lot more flavor, but all of them are very lightly flavored. And it's almost like, you know, they're just filling in these gaps in this, in this continuum. And, and there's, there's a market for all of that stuff that seemingly, uh, you know, I think Brian could probably speak more to like, you know, the longevity of this and the numbers. I know Brian, you dive into all that stuff a lot and I see you post about it a lot and I appreciate that. Um, but uh, I think just from a, a, a big picture standpoint, it's interesting how it just seems to be populating within this space of how much beer flavor do you actually want in your carbonated malt based alcoholic beverage? <laughs> I think one thing we've really, you know, from this, you know, pandemic and being, you know, combined to our spaces, we've really focused on not only mental health, but our physical health. So I think I've never seen such an emphasis on locale IPAs or just locale beers in general and non-alcoholic beers than this, you know, January, you know, obviously January is a big month when breweries want to put out locale beers or NA beers because people do those resolutions. It's, um, but I don't know if it has been heightened this year because of the pandemic or because um, you know, there's just further, you know, more breweries are doing NA beers like athletic, you know, you see them, they, they just started distributing to Kentucky. So you see them here. So I think it's an interesting, like, it could be an interesting study to see whether, you know, if the pandemic had like increased the reason why we see these locale beers, or it's just a trend that people want more beers that they can be like, okay, I can drink multiple of these, but not feel bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was going to say that to me is very interesting because th- it's kind of twofold because the low-cal IPA, as Brian pointed to, is kind of that session IPA that just got rebranded. You know, that's a marketing ploy and it's working. Um, but, but I also wonder too, if like Kinsey said, if there are, there's a more of a trend toward the healthy lifestyle um, for, from folks and that maybe these have a little more longevity than we might think, especially like non-alcoholic because for the longest time it was just bud in a or or a duels in a or or zero or whatever 
And then you have folks like athletic and others that are actually making different styles. Like I actually have a, uh, you know, extra dark beer that you can taste in the coffee and, and different things. in. um, it, it actually tastes like a beer. Um, is it my most favorite thing ever? No, but if I'm trying to behave and not, not get too wild, I don't mind having one or two. Um, so, I mean, do you guys see maybe a healthier lifestyle of people going to these a little more often? I want to reflect, because I think what you just said, Jonathan, is a really, really important thing. Uh, is it the worst thing ever? No. And I don't bring this up to poke fun <laughs> at non-alcoholic, but if you, look, if you look at the way that this category is covered, uh, definitely in the written space, but this is one example of where we're talking about it too, where it is put in context of it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it, this, this week, there have been a couple of stories as we're talking about non-alcoholic beer showing 38% growth in store sales in 2020. Well, here's the thing. Literally, out of all of the categories that IRI tracks, non-alcoholic beer is the lowest selling by volume. Mm -hmm. In IRI sales, this is grocery, convenience, liquor stores, chain stores. Non-alcoholic beer in 2020 sold about the same amount as fruit beers, and they both grew at the same percentage. But nobody's talking about fruit beers. (laughs) Nobody's talking about, uh, in the broad sense, you know, whatever, fruited wheat or fruited sour beer. For some reason, uh, I think rightfully so in January, there's a lot of concentration Mm -hmm. on the fact that people are trying to be more healthy. But the fact of the matter is, it is less than half of a percent of the beer category in the United States. So when we talk about the context of non-alcoholic, of it being between 10 15% in Germany, Spain, and England, these are countries with completely different drinking cultures. And so when I see these stories popping up over and over again, I have a really hard time both reconciling what I'm seeing in sales numbers with what people are saying and then what's happening out in the marketplace to be anything more than what a lot of people uh, might think to be this big explosion of interest. Um, But like I've been waiting for multiple years (laughs) when people are saying, give me three years and then we'll see where this is going. So I'm a, for, I'm a forever skeptic. Gotcha. That's been the big question in my mind is, you know, I, you know, how much growth is there really in this? And, and, you know, you hit it right on the head there, Brian, I was, I was hoping you would kind of uh, throw out some, some of the latest <laughs> data on that, because uh, I, I think, you know, the, the profile has definitely gotten a boost, uh, but that doesn't necessarily translate into sales. And I think some of that might be because there's this kind of intersection of that continuum of alcoholic strength with that continuum of beer flavor, right? That that kind of seltzer to beer continuum intersects largely with the NA in a lot of points. And I think it might benefit from some of, you know, the promotion of the athletic quote unquote beers and and non non-alcoholic or low alcoholic beers, because you know, there there's obviously a correlation between low ABV and calories, but not all of those, you know, uh, quote unquote session beers are necessarily that low of alcohol or even, you know, and then you've got seltzers. Some seltzers are like, you know, seven, eight percent as well. So, you know, they're not exactly the same thing, but I think, you know, I think some of that perception boost might come from that intersection between those kind of two continuums. Yeah, I was, you know, you guys were talking and there's been not really a jump, but you you were given numbers, Brian. Is it just because maybe more breweries are doing it and people aren't, you know, people are seeing like, oh, there's a whole brewery dedicated to brewing NA beers, you know, some big breweries have done it. Heineken has been running this car commercial I see all the time for an NA beer, but it's always been there. Is it just because bigger names and bigger breweries are doing it and they're putting in front of people's faces more? Is that, you know, again, yeah. is that a correlation to what's happening with sales and numbers? Yeah, I, I think there, there are a few different things happening here. Um, one, to, to your point exactly, Kinsey, is that Heineken spent $50 million last year in marketing, and they were two-thirds of the growth of the category in IRI sales. Uh, so, you know, b- between what we're seeing right now, it's basically Heineken, um, Bush, and Coors, I believe, are the three leading non-alcoholic 
and it's also a case where, you know, over the last three to four years, um, in surveys that have been led by Nielsen and the Brewers Association, there has been a very clear split between um, when people are responding back to what they look for in craft beer with uh, high ABV or low ABV. Now, high ABV uh, year over year is always about 20 percentage points higher of what people are looking for in terms of their rank of what they're interested in with craft beer than low ABV. But both have been steadily going up. So I, I think it's a case of you know, people are aware of the options and if you enter a space like non-alcoholic beer, where it is a small category, but you know, mm -hmm. it's still a situation where there is some white space to play in. So you don't have to be Heineken with a $50 million ad budget to make some money. You don't have to be athletic who does a really great job with their paid social advertising. There is something there. I think the trouble is when we start talking the Royal League, when we start talking about it as this kind of booming category where there is this great hope, whereas historically, we just don't have the footing to make these kind of declarative statements, uh, which worries me. So I think there's a whole like, you know, we could say for as much as attention people are paying to low ABV, low Cal IPAs right now, there's twice as much for double IPAs. Uh, Voodoo Ranger double IPA, arguably the most successful brand <laughs> of the last couple of years in craft beer. All right. Well, that kind of brings me to another topic here. Um, I was talking with Kevin Patterson, a Cicerone and, and manager of a craft beer store here in Lexington, Kentucky, where I'm based, kind of talking year in 2020, things that he's seen. Um, and especially when you're kind of at the ground level of, whether it's looking at the data or working in the bars, one thing that he said he started to see a little bit more of uh, maybe with the quarantine was people going to more well-established uh, beers or brands um, and not necessarily older folks grabbing those off the shelves, but you know, the younger folks grabbing an imported beer or something like that against the kind of wild and crazy styles that everyone was going for there for a while. If it was wild and new, that's what they wanted. So what, what, what is everyone's thoughts on that? Is it kind of one where we're seeing the change back to more of the, uh, you don't want to see what's the freshest thing on untapped or what, what are we seeing out there? I mean, I'll tell you for a fact, right before I came on, I drank two, two hearted ales from Bell's. It's a tongue twister, two, two hearted <laughs> ales. I mean, when I don't know what to drink, I just go with something I like. Um, especially right now, you know, breweries aren't putting out things as new as they normally would or fresh as they normally would. So it's always nice to have something to kind of fall back on that you know is good and you know is reliable, like a Bell's Two Hearted or a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, and especially during COVID, you know, you just know that's always gonna be a reliable beer and one that you can pick up and support that brewery. So I could see why, you know, people in the beer industry, you know, they do this flagship February where it's a whole, marketing thing to support breweries flagship beers and I think during the pandemic it was just people wanted to support them in any way so they always went to the beer that they knew that they loved from that brewery. Yeah I think I think we're seeing a lot of residual uh, to kind of further your point Kenzie. Uh, we're seeing some residual still from that uh, that pantry loading from March and April of last year because uh, you know when you're, you know, all those, and it's been discussed to death by now, but, uh, you know, if, if you know you're not going to be leaving home very much and you don't want to go out for the next month, you're going to buy something that you know is good and you're less likely to take chances. And so, so many people did that, uh, you know, and these were, you know, the, these brands and these beers that people were kind of rediscovering, it's not like those numbers were zero. They were largely struggling brands, but they were still big volume. So there's a ton of it out there. They're very well known and great beers and people were rediscovering them. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, that's kind of a little bit of the boost that some of these brands needed, you know, because there was so much discussion pre-COVID about what are these breweries going to do about these struggling flagship brands? And some of them obviously just needed a, a, a little boost from something. And I think that's part of it. And part of that residual too, is that, you know, breweries, uh, because 
things have been so unpredictable uh, with sales and, and so much is happening that nobody's seen before that there's some hesitancy to, uh, to experiment and just throw out a bunch of, a bunch of stuff that uh, you just want to see what sticks. Uh, you know, they want to play it kind of safe. And, you know, flagships have proven to be more safe than they used to be. Yeah, Neil, I think one of the unique things that and unfortunate things of what happened with COVID is the loss of the taproom and being able to have draft beer, um, where that kind of experimentation uh, took place both for breweries, but then also allowing consumers to step in and kind of figure their way out and just taste around a little bit. And when you combine both the challenges of sales, whether it's through distribution uh, or if it's just even trying to set up your own store in the earlier days of the pandemic, like that already sets things in a difficult place for breweries who want to try to introduce something new. Um, on a whole in 2020, TTB saw about 6% less uh, new product requests for labels uh, than 2019, uh, which I think reflects that, you know, there's also situations like the can shortage, where if you don't have the raw materials to put beer into, that sets you back. Um, but one of the unique things I think I saw uh, that ended up I think being more telling at the end of 2020 than what we saw in the middle is, you know, the conversations like you were mentioning, Neil and Kinsey, with um, what is familiar and what we know, uh, that I think we often miss the value when we talk about familiar, both in terms of just the literal consistent presence of these brands, uh, especially when it comes to price, because not only are consumers price sensitive to begin with, at a time when you have to make important decisions about your budget and where you're spending your money, uh, that puts in even additional premium on those brands. So Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, Boston Beer, you know, their core brands uh, were not only there, they were ready for wholesalers to put into stores. And they're also priced in a way that would be favorable to consumers too. So like Fat Tire, for example, uh, ended up being the number two brand for New Belgium last year. Uh, and it only grew by about 2% in IRI stores, whereas craft beer as a whole was almost about 8% growth. And Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, same thing. It was about 8% growth. So while that's good, it's also just right on par with the rest of craft beer. Uh, Shiner, their Shiner Bach actually saw a really great boost. But the flip side of that is, uh, I don't know if uh, you guys uh, saw it where you were. Here in North Carolina, Shiner Bach, was selling for $6 a six pack consistently for the last six or seven months, the lowest price craft beer in the cooler. And that absolutely would have an impact on the way people are picking it up too. So I think there's, there's, this, uh, there's two sides to this thing when we talk about both the importance of familiarity and then what happens because of it too. Uh, and as we saw over in 2020, as things kind of played out a little bit more, that familiarity seemed to play more true to the fact of, you know, these beers where they had been declining in these locations for about four years, they got a boost, but nothing like what other more successful brands did. And, and one thing that I, I also found interesting in, in my chat with Kevin too was, um, you know, just the, the industry in general, I think everyone kind of had to reset a little bit because you didn't have restaurants or bars as of open and you couldn't be selling, you know, keg and draft beers as much. So basically they had to take a wild guess. And I think most maybe played it safe. I mean, would, would folks agree with that? I mean, um, which makes good business sense. You're not going to release a wild and crazy beer out in bottles if you don't know it's going to sell. So I guess you played a little more close to the best and invest in those flagships more. Yeah, Neil, I'd be curious because I know tracking um, Beer Board, which is a, a company that partners with um, restaurants, bars, on-premise locations to track their taps and what they're selling. I saw a lot of them, this was in the summer and early fall, basically replaced only half of their taps. And like you're mentioning, Jonathan, you know, that's probably going to go to what you know is going to sell. Mm -hmm. Neil, I, it, I don't know if you had conversations with friends or peers in terms of what they were looking at when they were bringing draft beer back online. Was there anything that you saw that was maybe like a common thread with places? Uh, well, they, they wanted to stick with what they knew uh, and what they knew that they could turn over. Uh, they didn't want to take a lot of chances because, you know, they couldn't count, you know, they were only counting on a fraction of their normal uh, foot traffic. 
And, and so, you know, they wanted something that they knew they could sell. Um, and, you know, it also for the more discerning retailers, it came down to freshness, you know, and in May and June, especially, there was so much old beer in the market. Um, you know, there were distributors delivering out of code kegs to retail. It was, uh, it was pretty bad in some instances. And, and that's gotten a lot better, you know, it's, it's kind of worked its way out of the market at this point. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's still what I'm seeing, the draft beers I'm seeing are not uh, the, the, the kind of experimental stuff or something that's kind of out there, not a whole lot of new stuff. I'm still seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of sure bets, stuff that you know is going to sell that people are familiar with. All right. Now, one topic that I find very interesting, because um, Brian kind of talked, touched on this earlier with this, the fruited beers. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, to me, I, I love the fruited beers. We are fortunate enough one, to have one of the better ones, I think, near us in Urban Artifact up in Cincinnati that is doing some really great things. But the, also the slushy style, uh, smoothie style beers of, I feel like also a big thing with 450 North and, and different places like that doing that. What are your thoughts on that? Is this one of those like fly by night crazes that comes and goes or are we seeing this more long term? Because I'm a sour fan and I, I'm enjoying a lot, a lot of these. Maybe not so much always the smoothie style, but I do love the fruited beers and the sour ales. Have any of you guys ever had an exploding can? Not, not yet. Not yet. I have not. I don't buy those beers very much. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. So I had a really good. Um, it was. I think. It, I think it might have been uh, Edmonds Ostum. I can't remember, but it was kind of like a blueberry crumbleish flavored beer. But it was, you know, the the heavily fruited uh, tart beer recently that I really enjoyed. Um, and I think that stood out to me. Uh, it was probably because I'd done a good amount of, uh, of reporting on this kind of stuff in the last year or so, um, where, you know, I think both of what we're talking about just a moment ago and now with this idea of trying to find an easy connection to the things that we're drinking, you know, f- you know so like I had mentioned before, fruit beers saw this huge growth in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that kept on coming up in conversations when I was talking to uh, retailers and, and people in breweries was just the simplicity of understanding what that was. So if I slap, you know, blueberry crumble on the label of a beer, uh, there's a good chance people will know at least what to expect. Whereas the experimentation that we're talking about gets lost if you have kind of this esoteric name, this crazy artwork. But if you put a peach on a label and it's a peach, <laughs> people know exactly what they're getting. And I think that really does make a difference. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. It's, uh, to, you know, again, if you'll excuse my kind of thousand foot view on, on this, it, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's showing some, you know, uh, it's another manifestation of the uh, the kind of uh, in- innovative spirit of American brewers. Uh, they're they're taking beer, but they're kind of going in a totally different direction with it. And a lot of it, and it just really makes a lot of people angry. I think in a lot of the same ways that like seltzers make people angry. It's like breweries <laughs> shouldn't be making seltzers. Well, breweries shouldn't be doing all this like crazy fruit slushy stuff. Uh, none of that stuff really annoys me. I don't really drink it very much, either one of those things. But I think it's interesting to see because brewers are defining ways to create unique beverages that are malt-based that appeal to people. And they're creating new flavors and they're doing new things and, and putting these crazy fruited sour beers and slushy machines and and serving them in their tap room, I think is, is kind of amazing uh, that that's one of the crazy offshoots of uh, this kind of American craft beer scene. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. I don't know how long these trends will stick around, uh, but I'm, I'm enjoying seeing it. And I, I taste them every once in a while. And, and I, and I've had some that I thought were quite enjoyable. They're not a flavor that i would like to drink on a regular basis. That's why I just don't really buy them very often. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of the <clears throat> the smoothie sour beers either. I like a good traditional sour like Gosa or Berliner Weiss. Sometimes when you get that milk sugar or lactose in there, but 
just like the sour ones where you're seeing this trend with stouts, you know, you're seeing them with the pastry sours where it's the craziest ingredients you can throw into a stout and breweries are making it work. So it just, it honestly, like as bad as it sounds, it's showing the creativity that some of these breweries have and that they're making it work. And if people are buying it, you know, of course they're going to make it. Yeah. I tell, I, I tell, uh, sometimes I have brewers ask me, well, you know, what do you think about seltzer? I'm thinking about making a seltzer. I'm like, I'm like, go for it. I'm like, you have a beverage factory. If you feel Mm -hmm. like you can make something that people want to buy and make you money, you have a beverage factory. Mm -hmm. So make beverages. You know, it doesn't have to be beer just because you're a quote unquote craft brewery doesn't mean you have to make beer all the time and nothing but. And I, you know, and all of these crazy fruit beers and pastry stouts and stuff that those are pushing the envelope of what beer is just like seltzers are in the other direction. Uh, And, you know, and if people like them and you can make money doing it, then go for it. The only time I'm really going to have a gripe with you about it is if you are putting these exploding cans out in the market. That's the thing that really <laughs> kind of grinds my gears is when you're putting the onus of safety on the consumer to keep their beer refrigerated so it doesn't blow up in their hand. Yeah, I think we're all poking at something which is perhaps the most important part of all this. Like one, uh, do these things bring people joy? Like that's really, really important uh, and makes a lot of difference. And because the second part of that is, does it open the gates to more people? So if somebody who maybe doesn't identify themselves as a beer fan, but if they find a, a pastry stout or a really fruited sour that all of a sudden kind of makes them feel more comfortable in the space of beer, like that's awesome. Uh, and that mm-hmm. makes them happy. And so, you know, everyone's going to have their own uh, like favorites where they always turn to, but the sheer fact that, you know, if we've got breweries who are making these wildly flavored beers, whatever style they may be, or if they're making seltzer or something like that, you know, that is opening up the door literally and figuratively to more people to come in uh, and also helps them survive a little bit longer mm-hmm. during a really, really tough time. Like that's a really cool thing. And yeah. I'll- Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> a lot of these pastry stouts and pastry sours I see are based off of, you know, a certain dessert, I guess you could say, whether it's like a, I don't know, a chocolate cake. And sometimes when non-craft beer drinkers, like Brian mentioned, see that they're kind of attracted to it. So I think it's a, while some of the, while these beers are good problem for the most part, you know, it's <laughs> attracting an audience that they didn't attract before until they labeled it as a, you know, a German chocolate cake pastry sour or a pineapple upside down cake sour or whatever. Just, you know, the wording I think alone can attract people that normally didn't drink their beer to maybe give it a try if, if it actually does taste like that dessert. Yeah. I, and I, I love that. Uh, I love that point uh, about it. Uh, bringing people into the beer category. You know, I'm of an age that, um, you know, my, the beer that brought me, the beers that brought me into beer were, you know, American domestic light lagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those are the first beers I had. And eventually I got into full flavored beer and craft beer. There's somebody out there now probably who's sipping on a Sierra Nevada pale ale who was interest, introduced to beer because they drank some like fruited sour slushy beer. Right. I mean, so it, it is, you know, it has the potential to create more beer drinkers and to bring more people in, into beer in general. I, I, I enjoy that. And, and, and for, I, oh, uh, I'm just going to say for every like sour slushy beer, I like to think that there's a traditional like German style lager being created at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I was going to say, I love that the fact that you know, the, the brewers can be so creative that they put a pixie stick in a beer. <laughs> <laughs> or sprinkles i saw yes. that someone put sprinkles in their what was it like their mash tun or something i don't know or their yeah, I, I do still i do still reserve the right to roll my eyes when people are throwing yes. like fast food in the mash tun and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> ryan did you have something there i was just say it's like it's a very special time capsule 2020 <laughs> where we talk about you know, the important beers that helped bring people into the fold and get them thinking about beer when it's going to be, you know, the double chocolate pineapple upside down cake 
weeded sour ale uh, as like, that's going to be the thing. Like, think about it. Like there's going to be someone, pure math, someone out there at some point in the last year, like that was the thing relatively uh, that like got them to drink a beer that they wouldn't have ever had otherwise. It's true. And that kind of leads perfectly into, into what I was thinking next is, 2020 obviously threw a lot of challenges at the industry and for craft breweries everywhere from the pandemic shutting down their tap rooms to can shortages to you name it. What are some of those changes that you think will carry over or have started to carry over? Because I'm assuming uh, for a lot of breweries, they had to get real quick on the canning uh, because that was not in their plan originally. But when that's about the only way you can get product into someone's hand, you've got to move that way. Are you gonna? Are you guys thinking more breweries are gonna stick with canning, and and what are some other things that happen in twenty twenty that'll probably move on? There's actually uh, a brewery here in Durham, North Carolina, that announced that they're doing some of their specialty releases in twelve ounce bottles now, because it's harder to get cans, uh, which is going to be a very interesting situation for brewers of any size these next few years. Um, you know direct to consumer shipping. So e-commerce, you know, that's something that everybody points to. Um, I think the thing that really struck me most about 2020 was it acting as an accelerant for other broad trends. So something like, you know, fruited beers or beers that present easy understood, easily enjoyable flavors. That's one thing. Um, but the thing that I think, you know, both what COVID did by force in terms of forcing people to look inward toward their community, um, as well as something that was happening independent of that originally, I think is really, really important. Uh, you know, we're talking this week, Great Divide uh, just announced that they're gonna be closing their space in the River North District in Denver. Um, and that has been kind of a, a key anchor, but as their production has fallen over the last five years, they've almost gone from about 46,000 barrels to about 24,000 barrels in 2020, uh, which is an unfortunate situation for them, but it also kind of is a larger uh, example of how you go from this kind of super regional into like a very hyper local focused regional. Um, and there's some version of that for a brewery of any size right now, where, you know, you're treading water basically in 2020. And when basically uh, any food and beverage focused economist that I've heard from in the last six to nine months has said that we won't see a full scale recovery until well into 2022. So basically 21 is just trying to get us back to zero ish and then 22 is gonna push us forward. So the impact and importance of the way that these businesses think about and market to their communities immediately around them is gonna be really important. Yeah, I think, I think we're gonna to continue to see some of this hybridization of, of a business model for a long time. You know, uh, cans are, you know, cans are still gonna be really important. They were, you know, obviously, uh, on the rise for a while before COVID hit and, and then, you know, uh, hit big time enough to where there's supply issues that that they'll overcome supply issues eventually. Um, but, you know, uh, breweries emphasizing to go sales. Uh, there's a lot more breweries that uh, that are just that are canning now that weren't before and never planned on doing it. Um, so, you know, that's going to continue to be a part of it. I mean, you see the same thing with restaurants and the relaxation of, uh, of some of these laws that uh, to go laws. So, you know, you're seeing a lot more uh, packaged beer in, in both crawlers and in, you know, just bottles and cans going out of restaurants now where, mm -hmm. where it wasn't even legal before. And some of these regulations are going to stick around. Um, some of them will revert back to where they were, but uh, that's going to be one of the things we're going to see as well. I think. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of breweries expand, you know, the states that they ship to that they don't already distribute to. Like, I think Trillium just announced, I don't know, they're shipping to Pennsylvania and they'll probably ship to Ohio. And, you know, I see, I think we'll see a lot of states do direct shipping to, or a lot of breweries do direct shipping to states, still, states that they don't already distribute to. And I think, you know, that, they, that process was sped up because of COVID, but they also might realize that's, you know, very, you know, it, it's something that they should do, you know, just in general is because 
you know, people are going to want beers from a brewery that they can't get in their state. So if they can ship it to them without having to go to the store. I mean, it's the Amazon model, you don't have to go to the store, but yet you can get it right at your door. And we, you know, you guys have talked about a lot about the whole community aspect. You know, I read a lot of these stories that about when you open a brewery, you want to really hit hard within your community. You when it open, you want to just get the support from your community. And I think the pandemic, what it has shown us is that yes, you can grow and get bigger and whether it's, you know, statewide support you get, but the support of your community is important. And especially during COVID, you know, when people can walk in and just grab a growler to go or six pack to go, it shows that the community support is very important to your success. So I think in 2021, a lot of breweries are going to take a step back and focus on their immediate community, their immediate, you know, town support, city support, whatever that may be, because it, they were the ones that were there supporting them during the pandemic. Um, obviously, if you distribute to many states, it's different, but, you know, if you're only just doing crowler, growler, you know, six pack sales out of your tap room during the pandemic, it was your local community coming and supporting you. So I think a lot of breweries will take a step back and just focus on their immediate community and that and their support and that success going forward in 2021. And, and Neil, I think you touched on something very important too with the laws. I, I'm curious to see how some of those play out because in Kentucky, you weren't allowed to take a six pack home from a restaurant, but all of a sudden, or to go drink, you know, now you can. And I believe it's, it's stuck in. Um, there were some other changes that had happened pre-pandemic that came up that were just finalized during it um, in terms of direct shipping. Um, a lot of breweries now in Kentucky and distilleries can actually just direct ship in the state. So I'm curious to see how that those laws continue to change because that to me is the biggest hindrance for a lot of good growth um, is if, if you can get more of that direct to consumer route, whether that's delivery or not, because um, not everyone can you know, distribute to 500, you know, stores or, or restaurants, but, you know, if you can send it via UPS or a delivery service, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, that's going to be a battle. I think that plays out uh, depending on what the law is, you know, to a certain extent, uh, some of these laws will stick around because the sky didn't fall when you were allowed to bring a six pack home. So, you know, the evidence is clear, you know, that, that, you know, Hey, we can do this and things will still be okay. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got uh, the, the distributor interests, and that's going to be a very powerful force in trying to roll back some of these laws that have been relaxed in the past year, because, you know, some of these things are kind of bypassing the distribution channel, and they're not just going to sit back and let that happen. Uh, I think they are up to this point because uh, they kind of have to, uh, but when the time comes, you can bet that there's going to be a lot of state distributor associations that are pushing really hard to roll back some of these laws that protected their interests. And then to, to finish out kind of our round table for the evening, we're in 2021 now, 2020 is thankfully behind us. Uh, what, what are some things you hope to see from the craft beer industry in 2021? Well, for me, I'll go, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, not super into those slushy smoothie sour beers. I have seen breweries going back and focus on more traditional traditional style beers. Um, Dovetail just announced that they're gonna be sending beers to Kentucky and I cannot be more excited. <laughs> so um, I'm also the biggest fan of Schwartz beers and nobody does a Schwartz beer that I can find in like a six packs or a four pack. So I think, I don't know, you know, with people seeing, you know, brewery or breweries seeing more people buying their traditional, you know, the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, that they bring some more of those traditional styles back. Yes, every now and then we'll see those hype beers or the, the pastry stuff. But for me, what I hope to see in 2021 is more traditional style beers, because as a fan of those, I want to see more of them. And shout out to Dovetail for coming to Kentucky. I'm so excited. Kinsey, I think my heart almost jumped through my chest when you said Schwartz beer is your favorite. Oh <laughs> my gosh. I love Schwartz beers so much. Like um, everyone has no idea what they are, but I'm the biggest Schwartz beer fan. 
uh, Saranac uh, Black Forest, RIP, uh, probably my gateway beer um, many years ago. Uh, but I like maybe like you, Kinsey, uh, if I see it on the menu, I'm ordering it. <laughs> West Six has a Schwartz beer on, and I think I've I've gone. They have a tap room here because they're a Lexington brewery. They've one in Louisville, and I've gone every time, and I've ordered it. But they don't can it, so I have to physically go there, which is they do a really good job of being safe and everything. But that's the only reason I go there is to get their Schwartz beer. <laughs> Um, John, I'm going to, I'm going to take your question very literally, uh, what I hope, what I hope to see mm -hmm. in 2021, um, beer is in a very difficult place right now, not just craft beer, beer as a whole, uh, you know, it, looking at the last five, six years or so has been really rough. And this isn't just, uh, in store sales, all of beverage alcohol, uh, beer basically went from being above 50% uh, in terms of the servings of alcohol for Americans to within the next three years, it'll be about a third of all servings. Uh, spirits taking a huge chunk of that. Uh, flavored malt beverages like hard seltzer taking a huge chunk of that. Uh, and as we speak to start 2021, if you look at in-store sales, beer is about half as much of the growth as spirits right now. It is below, again, the rate of growth for all of beverage alcohol. Uh, so what I hope is that that might at least get to neutral-ish. We've kind of been, the industry has kind of been treading water a little bit. And I hope that uh, as we continue to grow, there is a, a, a net gain of, I think Bart Watson from the BA had a stat today about the permits to open breweries uh, was something like 950 more than last, than in 2020, than 2019, uh, which I think is awesome. Uh, and I hope that equates to more opportunities, more fans, and more beers in people's hands. Uh, I, I, I'll uh, take that same tack in what I hope will happen. Uh, I hope breweries take, uh, uh, take more notice of quality and what they're doing. This is, this is a drum I beat frequently for anybody who, who knows me. Um, you know, uh, the state of draft beer in the past year has been very difficult. There's a lot of systems that are completely shut down. Uh, most of them, are, a good portion of them are, are still partially shut down. Uh, draft quality issues are an issue when you're not taking care of your system, you're not using your system, they're designed to be used. Um, and so at a time when draft quality issues have the potential to be uh, really big, um, You've also got a situation where customers are very precious and mm -hmm. every person that walks through the door is more important than they've ever been because there's so few of them. And so if there's any reason for a customer to go somewhere else, they're probably going to because they don't have much money themselves, a lot of them, and they're being very selective about where they go. So in that environment, breweries need to be very careful and put an emphasis on quality because if you're screwing it up, if you're serving somebody a bad beer and they have an option to go down the street and get a better one, that's probably what they're going to do next time. So my hope is that more brewers pay attention to things like draft beer quality and overall beer quality in package too. Well, I, I love the, the hopes. I hope that we just get, get back to somewhat of a normal year, um, whether that's just being able to go to a brewery and, and have uh, a few more than just a couple of your closest friends around. Uh, that, that's kind of my biggest hope because I've missed going going there because I've got a little one that likes to run around and that's not exactly what you want at a brewery or really anywhere these days is, <laughs> is a child running around up to, to, to someone with what's going on. Now for everyone, final thoughts, anything that we should take with us as we go? Ooh, Neil, I think you got me thinking this moment in time is not, it is a very tenuous spot where the opportunity and the necessity has never been perhaps as great as it has been, which is probably something we could say about a lot of things uh, in the country and world right now, uh, living amongst the pandemic. Um, but it is, 
never been the, a more exciting and frightening time, I think, <laughs> to be in and around and covering the industry. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh, go ahead, Neil. Oh, go ahead, Kenzie, please. No, as someone who works in the industry and covers it, it's it's scary. Not scary because I think, you know, people are always going to drink beer, you know, or consume alcohol. So there's always going to be that. We saw that, you know, prohibition tried to limit that. Of course, that didn't work. But I also think with stuff that we've experienced in 2020 with, you know, race and all that things, we have as an industry, we have so much to improve upon. So that's what I'm hoping to see in 2021 is, you know, we, you know, smash all the stigmas of white dudes and beards. And we see more people, black, indigenous people of color in this industry, you know, of course there's something came out about Boulevard this week that as me as a female in this industry, you never want to read. So I just, in 2021, I hope we get better at that, you know, hope we get better at diversifying the industry make it more acceptable for everyone and anyone. Yeah, and, and uh, that's right in line with what I was gonna say is, is I think this is a, an opportunity for a lot of businesses, uh, retailers and breweries to kind of hit the reset button and makes, you know, they're already put in a difficult position. So, you know, a lot of them are already making difficult changes that are going to benefit them in the long run, even when things uh, kind of quote unquote, get back to normal. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what I, I would keep encouraging, uh, businesses to do is to make those difficult decisions now because things are already difficult and hit that reset button because, uh, things are going to be, things are going to be different when they get back to normal, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, I think you're, you're right on with that. And, and they're going to have to do things a lot different because you never know what's going to be around the corner. Uh, the next time, so to speak. Um, well, Neil, Brian, Kenzie, I appreciate you guys so much uh, for hopping on here and chatting uh, some, some crazy beer topics with me. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, a lot of great information, a lot of great insights. I really appreciate Neil, Brian, Kenzie talking beer with me on the very first, the inaugural uh, Under the Influence Roundtable series here on the Hops and Spirits podcast. We're going to be doing these uh, pretty much uh, every month. Uh, we might skip a month here and there, but the goal is to do it uh, just about every month. We'll switch between beer, bourbon, and maybe sometimes bring on uh, the alcohol industry folks. That's why it's kind of under the influence of beer, bourbon, or, or something else, whatever's kind of tickling my fancy at that that moment. Uh, I j just hope you're enjoying these these kind of new uh, episodes, new ways we're, we're doing the podcast. Uh, we'll still be doing interviews with, with folks. Uh, we've got a great one for you next week as we kick off Flavorful February with Derek DeFranco from Mirror Twin. Uh, he'll be back on for the second time to talk about how they create their wild beers and how you do uh, some infusion of flavors and, and how that process works. It'll kick off our Flavorful February series where we have a lot of different uh, things planned for it. And also, don't forget, before I uh, head out, check out our Drinking Buddies Monthly Giveaway Club. Go to any of our social media at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Click the link. Sign up. It's free. Our Drinking Buddies Club Monthly Giveaway. We're giving away five really good beers this month, and who knows next month, it might be some samples of some whiskey and bourbon that we've had on the show. And until next time, cheers, everyone.